0: Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rotford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It does help others to find it too. And if you have any feedback or questions, they're always welcome. Email me at laura at That's it for now. Let's get started with the show. Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. We are back this week with Dr. Wells, Joel Wells, MD. Thank you so much for coming on, Joel.
1: Well, thank you all so much for having me. It's a true honor to have this opportunity.
0: Well, and thank you. It's an amazing opportunity for me personally and for the whole community that we both work so passionately with. Um, and I, was, I think I was just saying just before we went live that You know, I put this post out on Instagram saying that, you know, I was gonna get to have this interview with you um, and did anyone have any questions that they might like to ask? And just the responses were overwhelming. And so I've got quite a few questions lined up and hopefully we'll get a chance to answer most of them. Um, But yeah, I just wanna thank you on behalf of the whole hip dysplasia community for the work that you do, how much you care about your patients um, and how much you actively do to help this community. So thank you from everybody
1: you're so welcome
0: (laughs) so um there's a couple of things um that i wanted to quickly touch on before we hit questions Um, and i know that you do a lot of work with miles for hips now with nancy muir and of course it is hip dysplasia awareness month right now um and you recently in the last year became their hip dysplasia consultant i believe
1: that's correct. Yes, I, it, it's been a phenomenal opportunity to uh, I, I serve as their medical director, and Miles for Hips is is such a, a great um, entity uh, to to help patients that are going through you know this journey, and um, my uh, my role of it is of course to uh, uh, to review any anything that's going to be posted or anything like that for uh, certain medical terminology, medical knowledge, and just honesty, and uh, what I love about it, and for my patients, is that it's It it is an unbiased place because uh, depending on where you go for information uh, on the internet and social media, sometimes you do get some biased information. And so I I really think having an unbiased, uh, just an educational resource for uh, for people going through uh, this journey with hip dysplasia and hip pain is very important.
0: Absolutely. So, um, yeah, like I said, uh, Nancy absolutely raves about you. We have conversations about you quite frequently. Um, and I know she really appreciates the work that you do as well. So, um, so we've got that, that we want to chat about, but also there is a resource that you have that I found of yours recently, um, called your hip journey guide. Um, and it's something I really wanted to make everybody that listens to this podcast aware of because it was such a fantastic, um, book um, to be able to read and I think so many people will value um, its content. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey guide that you've put together, what prompted it to happen um, and a little bit about it?
1: Yes, and so th- th- this was a big project, and it, and it really took a, uh, over a year, um, and, and it was a team effort uh, with uh, uh, my, my clinical team uh, uh, as well as the marketing team at UT Southwestern. And th- the goal for this was to, to help educate patients and uh, uh, allow them to understand uh, the, their perioperative recovery, uh, uh, what surgery entails, and, and help, help them optimize their outcome postoperatively. And so, what this journey guide is is, is for basically an educational uh, document to kind of outline what I expect and, and what I require during the prior to surgery, uh, intraoperatively, as well as postoperatively. And so, patients kind of have a, a resource that they can go to. And uh, um, all too often, I think patients, uh, when they're signed up for surgery, sometimes uh, they they know more uh, than than most, uh, but uh, sometimes they don't. And uh, my goal and my, the best part of my job is really being able to sit down and educate a patient. But sometimes even I fall short uh, with time and things like that. And so this journey guide was an adjunct to help educate patients throughout their uh, surgical uh, perioperative time. And so uh, this, this journey guide, it's, it's, uh, and now it's in publish, you know, in, in production. And all my patients get it prior to surgery. And they can, it can also be found online on, on my webpage. But it basically, it's a it's a uh, uh, it, it's from beginning to end and recovery and what to expect and, uh, and some nutrition stuff and you know little little things that can help patients along the way.
0: That's amazing because I mean there obviously have been some books that have been out over the years Um and I've read as many of them as I could possibly find um, and whilst they were very informative about a few things you know some of them were a little dry um, and not quite as informative as you'd like about the, the questions, you know, that you really want to ask and um, that you're really unsure of. Um and I, you know, I think it's great. Like I said, that, you know, we're able to take this opportunity to speak to you and ask some of those questions that are a little bit more awkward or that people, you know, actually have quite a lot of anxiety about, you know, it might not be about just understanding what the surgery is. It might be about, well, actually, am I going to be able to do things like, you know, go to the loo by myself and am i going to be able to do all this and what sort of support am i going to need um and these are the things that are really you know of a main concern you know everybody trusts you know what you're doing (laughs) you know on the table so um yeah it's just incredible so are you happy for me to get started on some of our questions today
1: yeah i'd love to i look forward to it let's do it
0: Okay so these aren't in any particular order um but I have the first question um what exercise is safe to do 1 year after a total hip replacement for a lady who says that yoga aggravates her and she's 47 years of age
1: yes, That's a that's a great question and you know it was funny I actually got asked that twice already today um, Really for, yes no no joke I just came from clinic and and so um, i 'll start with uh, with one kind of overall arching uh, w- what are some good hip specific or you know hip um, um, safe type of exercise, especially after a total hip and so you know uh, uh, w- after a total hip, you do worry about the prosthesis and the, the health of that and the tissues and the soft tissues surrounding uh, surrounding it and so higher impact activities uh, after a total hip are often are often, um, are often um, we, we say not to do them, but there's really no studies to show that it necessarily increases uh, um, uh, wear. And so static stretching is, is something that's, that's tough on a, on a total hip because with a hip, especially after an arthroplasty, you want to make sure that it stays in the joint and does not dislocate. And certain motions in yoga, depending on what type of a, a total hip approach you have, can increase your risk for a dislocation with that said it 's very good to uh, to keep your motion and not be too stiff and so static type stretching like yoga i would I would probably advise against uh, um, for certain patients uh, um, after a total hip and so f- what are exercises you can do that are kind of happy health, uh, health exercises? And so lower impact activities um, such as swimming, uh, elliptical and biking are really great after a hip replacement. Some people still play tennis and, and other things after hip replacement. What's great about tennis and certain lateral type of, uh, sporting activities is that you also work the side of your hips, your abductors. And, and so or you know that um, when, when we run and when we walk and when we exercise, we're always in the forward plane. Well, well the hip is, is unique in that um, the lateral, the side muscles on the side um, get uh, get uh, often overlooked and get weak. And so, um, if you want to do more kind of uh, uh, sprinting or cross training, I would advise you to do this uh, on grass or track. But also uh, do some more lateral movements to help keep the the abductors strong as well. All those things are are very safe and 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 fine to do after a hip replacement. With all that said, though, um, every hip is different, and certain patients find certain activities that kind, to, that kind of aggravate their hip, and, and those aggravating activities, it, it would be best to try to modify against those, because uh, you can think of the hip and certain pathologies of the hip, whether it's after a hip replacement or not. as as almost a a disease in a way that you have to manage continually and like hypertension or diabetes. It's, it's not just necessarily cured. It is improved with the treatments we do, but it needs continual management and continual uh, therapy and uh, understanding.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's a good mindset to get into because I think if everybody, regardless of whether they have hip dysplasia or you know, any kind of health condition, if everybody took the time to do something positive for their strength or their health, you know, 10 minutes a day, for example, it could make such a massive difference. But if everybody was doing something positive for themselves every day, why can't that be something that's just the norm? You know, we think that because we might have a health condition, you know we have to do these things and it's a chore to have to do some exercise but actually if we took a different perspective and a different outlook that you know we get to do something positive for ourselves to make ourselves have the best quality of life and function and health possible it's just a different outlook isn't
1: it you you are awesome exactly oh so, thank you <laughs> I, I, you know, the thing is, um, you, have, you have to spend some time to keep your hip healthy, just like you do everything else um, w- with your nutrition, you know, with your, your, your emotional health. You know, it, it is another part of uh, your day. It should be another part of your daily activities.
0: Absolutely. So I just wanted to backtrack a little bit to when you were talking about, you know, the side of your hip um, and the strength and just uh, pop in a little physio something here that it's um, if you go to your physio and they start talking about this word Trendelenburg. Um, sign you know you can tell whether you might need a little bit of extra strength through the side of your hip if you stand on one leg and your hips don't stay level anymore that you have one drop and puts extra pressure on the outside of the hip Um, and that's you know something that we really need to work on the strength especially if you might have to consider doing any kind of impact whether that's just running across the street because a car's coming or you know any kind of impact sport that you might have to do for any reason you know it's really important to work on those lateral stabilizers um, but that's a way that you can test it at home to see whether you're you know, having some sort of stability issue um, and look out for that at home. What do you think?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I tested Trendelenburg on every single one of my patients. If you don't watch your patient <laughs> walk um, and test the Trendelenburg, you do not do a full hip exam. And, <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, I, I say the gluteus medius and minimus, really, I, I say that they're basically the holy grail to the hip. You know, some people say they're the rotator cuff of the hip. Well, th- to be honest with you, the gluteus medius and minimus are, are so much more important um, to the hip than even the uh, the rotator cuff. And in, in my opinion, of course, I do hips. But they attach your hip, your your femur to your pelvis and your low back. They are the foundation. And so uh, if they are weak, uh, if they're, you know, if they're off, if you're leg are off if you know you have some functional scoliosis. If you have dysplasia, it, it it really throws them off, and it can also have downstream effects. And so they are important.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's another muscle that I get so many questions about. You know, when I'm working with people one to one, and honestly, the main bugbear for people I think tends to be the TFL. Um, yep, yep. So many people have issues with their TFL um, and into their hip flexors, but um, TFL seems to be the one that people struggle with the most. Um, don't really know what to do, how to rehab it, how to stretch it. It is a bit of a tricky one to to stretch. Granted, um, but do you find you get that feedback a lot about the TFL? I-
1: Yes, I I do. And so, you know, a a, a a portion of my practice is direct anterior total hips. And so, you know, I'm often around the TFL and after direct anterior total hip, you go through a certain plane and that's one of the muscles that you you have to uh, uh, retract and save and what's unique about the tfl uh, most people don't appreciate this and i, I really think it's actually uh, it's a part of the secondary lateral stabilizers although it is somewhat a, a hip flexor if you look at it anatomically in some of the oldest you know uh, in, in anatomy books is very it's, it's very great that you have your glute max that comes in with your tfl that makes the it band and your it band is is also a lateral stabilizer of the hip and uh um I often use this in, in the end stages of, uh, say, uh, abductor tears or, um, you know, patients with a very, very bad if whether there's glu- their gluteus medius or minimus is torn, is completely fatty infiltrated, or it has some de- denervation, you can actually use that TFL and the IT band and the GMAX to compensate, um, you know, surgically uh, to, to redirect those in a tendon transfer to help abduction of the hip.
0: That's fascinating. I didn't. I didn't know that that had, uh, that had been started. Well, started being done. I mean, is that a recent thing, or has that been done for quite some time?
1: Yeah, there, there's some literature on it. Uh, um, I, I use it when I do an abductor reconstruction or have some abductor tears, um, just because the force that the gluteus medius and minimus see uh, are, are are so great, and so if you do a primary repair, sometimes the failure rate is high, and so I usually augment it with, a, with the with tendon transfer of the TFL. Um, and so, to answer your, your question, yes, the TFL is, is, is an important muscle at the hip, uh, and it's often sometimes overlooked in, in some physios, uh, but also patients, uh, you know, if you really listen to them, often have symptoms that are stemming from it.
0: Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something that um, I get asked a lot, and you know, give a lot of information about. But it's really great to know what some of those other reasons are that people might be having those issues if they have had tendon transfers, for example. They might not even have known about. Um, so it's definitely worth people asking for their, you know, surgical notes. I suppose to know exactly what's happened.
1: And, you know, after a direct anterior total hip and or a PAO, because part mm-hmm. of the PAO uh, uh, dissection, it is the, the Huter interval or the Smith-Pete interval, and the, the TFL often uh, could um, get par- partially released and or uh, needs to be repaired.
0: Yeah, that happened to me. <laughs> Which is why it's such a bugbear for me and such a, a point of passion, but, um, we can definitely come back to that another time. Um, all right. Next question. Um, this lady sent in a question about her son. Um, he's 12 years old um, with mild hip dysplasia. Um, and she's concerned if he continues with sports, um, and you know, potentially wanted to develop a career, what are the chances of needing a hip replacement or being able to continue to play at a high level?
1: Wow. So, you know, th- that, that's the question that drives me every single day that wakes me up in the morning is that, you know, we, we know something. What's great, what's, what we know about hip dysplasia and why I love it is that certain forms and certain severities we know leads to degeneration of the joint, of the hip joint. And so that question is very multi- multifactorial and that, you know, I, I, to, to answer it fully, um, to give you an honest answer, you know, I'd need to know kind of the severity. I'd like to, you know, of course, see the x-rays. But, um, you know, if he's already been diagnosed and has a, has a good uh, pediatric orthopedic surgeon or hip surgeon that is, that is following him, you know, uh, um, they, they, could, uh, they can discuss the x-rays. But with, this, with that said, um, about being active, okay, and so my goal in all my patients is keep to keep my patients active. And so with, uh, with that, if someone even has mild dysplasia that is somewhat asymptomatic, that is not severe, that won't necessarily lead to uh, arthritis that we know of very quickly and doesn't need surgical treatment, then I would advocate for, for a patient to remain active, especially one that is 12. Why? Well, because what's, you know, the, the leading cause of, of, of injury or of issues currently in the United States and throughout the world uh, um, is, is heart disease. And so you have to balance right being active for your hip, but also your overall health. And so I love sports nutrition and being active. And so um, With that said, it is important for his hip to remain active for his overall health, his cardiovascular health. I would never want him to to go and be a couch potato and not be active because someone told him he can't do something because of his hip. And so if his hip warrants treatment, whether it's surgical or, or physio, then he should continue doing that lifelong in order to maintain his activity level. And so certain sports, there, there are certain sports that are maybe better and you know, harder impact, but at the same time, it's just about being active. It's so important.
0: Absolutely. Um, and the thing is, I think people don't necessarily consider how much people love this stuff as well. So if you've got such a passion for this sport, but somebody says, oh, you shouldn't be playing football, for example... I think there's not enough information that comes from people to say, actually they might have only meant, you know, for the next six months or they might have only said that you've had surgery. So actually maybe you shouldn't play this sport, but actually they were talking for a few weeks and, and there will probably be ways that you can get back to doing some level of the thing that you love to do if you take the right path and speak with the right people.
1: Yes. Yeah. Do you agree? I totally agree. And so through, through sports uh, and, and, you know, activities, you know, you'll have bumps along the way, but that, that's why you need a good team behind you of uh, medical professionals to help guide you and keep your activity. And so I, I, I try and never discourage, um, you know, sports or activities. I am always trying to get patients back to their sports and activities if I can.
0: Pro movement all the way. Cool. So, next question then that we've got is, um, what is the age cutoff for a PAO?
1: So, you know, I, um, I, I so to answer that question, it's not the age of the patient; it's the age of the hip. And when when I was a resident, I I I loved hips. Okay, and and I actually um, my my first big one was my mentor was Dr. Michael Millis, and I I wanted to look up his long term outcomes of his PAOs. And I did that because I felt in my heart, if I'm going to um, dedicate my life to something, I want to know in my heart and be honest that it helps patients, right? Putting a patient through a big surgery is the hardest thing I do. And I have to be convinced and I have to know when I I, I wanna help that patient. The last thing I wanna do is hurt them or even put them through a surgery that does not provide them any relief. That is often my, my biggest fear. And so by doing that, I, I actually went back and I looked at um, Dr. Millis's first PAOs, and, and I, I really scrutinized every single x-ray. And come to find out, even though in that initial study, age was a predictor, um, a predictor of, say, failure or increased pain later on or needing a total hip, um, I, I prefaced it with it's not the age of the patient, it's age of the hip. Because just yesterday, I, I, I saw a patient, she was, she was in her mid-20s, and her hip um, was much more far advanced than someone I saw today for a pre-op that was, she was 38, and her hip still looked healthy. And so, there, in my opinion, there's no specific age cutoff for the patient. I grade the hips age.
0: Awesome. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that are really relieved to to hear that because there are so many different types of hip surgeries that can happen now. Right. So, you know, people will most commonly know about the PAO and the hip replacement, but, you know, there's quite a lot of other options out there. So, um, you know, would you mind just giving us a little list of some of the other options that are out there?
1: Sure. And, and so I like to, you know, when, when I teach med students and residents uh, um, for, for the big picture, um, I, I think for, say, bony morphology of the hip and, 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 and uh, helping maintain a happy hip, you, you try to kind of uh, diagnose a patient, whether they have instability or impingement, because a treatment, um, uh, you kind of the treatment algorithms for both are very different. If you treat an unstable hip as an impinging hip, you further destabilize the hip, and you can actually accelerate the d- degenerative process, whereas if you treat an impinging hip as a dysplastic hip, you make the impingement worse. And so a PAO is, is basically the, the best bet for an unstable hip with, a, with a functional and actually a bony instability. Whereas a a hip that is impinging, hip arthroscopy is often a great option uh, to remove certain areas of impingement. And the the hip being so complex and three-dimensional, it it takes a, a good exam as well as advanced imaging to come to a conclusion exactly where that impingement is. Also, there's some capsular instability type patients, too, that could benefit from capsular um, tight, tightening or complications or things like that. And so there are a lot of different types of surgeries within the things we do. Uh, but uh, for, for, I guess, the, the best the purpose of this talk is understanding that uh, a tr- treating a hip dysplasia patient or hip instability patient needs to be tailored for instability, um, whereas a hip impingement patient needs to be tailored for hip impingement, not instability.
0: I think it's probably nice for people to hear that there are lots of different options, but the the way that somebody comes to the conclusion of which surgery you get is is based on such an individual process. It's not, right, you've got hip dysplasia, so therefore you will have you know surgeries in this order because that's just the done thing you know it does go through a rigorous scrutiny period you do take into account the person um, and the whole assessment of the whole hip as well so you know there's a, quite a lot that goes into deciding what happens person to person and this is why no person's journey is the same as each other's um, but i hope people find that quite reassuring to to hear
1: Every every hip is unique and that's that's why that's why I love hips is that every single one I see is 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 different in, in, in a way. And so that, that's that way I'm always I'm continually learning about each patient's hip.
0: Awesome. Okay. So this next one um, brings into account the spine as well. So um, there was a question that came and said that, is there any research related to um, the impact on the lumbar spine or the sacroiliac joint um, before or after a PO and with hip dysplasia in general? Because a lot of people do suffer with their back or their sacroiliac joint um, pre and post surgery. So...
1: So, so to, to one to answer that question, um, I'll say, is there a relationship? Heck, yes, there's a relationship. And so, um, think think of the hip spine core relationship as a say a, a perfect orchestra. And so, you know, all the instruments have to be in tune for for the health of each one of them. Um, one study that we 're actually doing currently that there 's not much out there is looking at patients with hip dysplasia and you know I, I often see that there there are lumbar spine pathologies that may be incidental um, or may be uh, somewhat uh, uh, symptomatic at the same time, uh, radiographic as well as uh, some advanced imaging. And so to answer the question, yes, there's a clear relationship. Um, how is it, is it the chicken or the egg? What is it the lumbar spine pathology that leads to the dysplasia or vice versa? Um, that's debatable, but in my opinion, they're, they're both together. And so it, it's because of both that oftentimes That patients have uh, these symptoms and so uh, with dysplasia um, i'll diagnose a patient with hip dysplasia and a lot of times sometimes their their pain is more posterior or lumbar related Um, and so that's their pain generator that area and so sometimes fixing the hip dysplasia does help the back but it's not operating on the back and so you have to correct the complete uh, kinematics of the hip spine core in order to fully treat that patient.
0: Absolutely. So you've got, you know, the, the impact of one on the other, you can't ever, you know, address one without it having an effect on the other. And we always say this, if you treat a joint, you know, be aware of what's going on, you know, at the joint above and below, and because it's obviously going to have a direct impact on what's going to happen. And, and I think it's just working on the quality of movement that you've got. Right. So, you know, if you've had a hip surgery, looking at getting rid of old bad habits, the way that you stand your posture and trying to make sure that you're getting rid of those compensation strategies to try and deload and de-stress on the other joints around it.
1: Um, yeah. And, and that, that's so true is that a lot of what I do is uh, being a part of a patient's care, teaching them how to move again, how to walk, how to carry their body. Because, uh, you know, in the 21st century, we, we are we're sitting most of the time. We're doing activities that we necessarily didn't evolve to do, you know, like we, we evolved to, to hunt, to feed, to, to sprint, to, to stand and do these things. And so that these motions and how, we sit with uh forward and things like that you know may not initially come natural to our anatomy
0: absolutely um so this next question is one that um really kind of took me back a little bit i um, i heard this question i didn't realize this was such a thing but there was um a lady that said why is there such a focus on weight loss um with a pao and um, so she was finding there was a lot of pressure to lose weight um you know before the surgery but wasn't really getting any help or assistance or guidance with that it was just like you need to hit a certain number um before we'll operate so can you explain a little bit about why there is such a you know reason for weight loss why it's there um and you know why it's probably there for your best interests yes
1: so, so another another great question and something uh, near and dear to my heart uh, uh, is nutrition, and so I, I actually had that same question and I and I published a study looking at complications after PAOs and, and a patient's BMI was a was a direct uh, um, correlation with increased risk of complications. And so one, the, a, a PAO is a, is a very technically challenging surgery. It's very difficult. And uh, with a patient's BMI, some patients that are larger, makes it even more difficult, and it could increase the risk of complications. And if you were to have a complication, whether it's a malreduction, whether it's a non-union or fracture, or whether it's an infection, then th- that could be devastating to your long-term outcome after that surgery. And so that's number one, that BMI uh, does increase the one's risk for, uh, for complications after a PAO um, and then also it, it, it makes things much more difficult to, to get right you know I, I strive and what I love about the hip is trying to get things as perfect as I can because every hip is different and that makes it much more technically challenging and even harder and sometimes impossible to get things perfect or see things uh, with uh, increasing BMI then, other you, the, the, then the other thing you can look at with um, a, a patient 's uh, weight or is that uh, oftentimes uh, a, a hip can respond well and can be less symptomatic uh, with with less weight and so if you look at the biomechanics of the of the hip joint uh, depending on incline or decline or stairs, you put about three to seven times your body weight on your hips um, and so if your hip is already at a disadvantage because of hip dysplasia if one when were to lose some weight it's actually more it's you know it's exponential as so you can multiply that number up to seven times in certain activities and so by doing that you can actually lessen the pain and lessen the symptoms and so sometimes with weight loss and proper physiotherapy patients become asymptomatic and, and may not need a surgery
0: that's a massive claim then isn't it if you know that potentially making a change like that could mean that you don't have to have a surgery like that's massive. Yes. But perhaps this lady just uh, was unfortunate in the way that this message was delivered and perhaps wasn't given, you know, quite the amount of education that, you know, hopefully, you know, that you've just given out now. Okay, next question. And if you have dysplasia in both hips and you've had a PAO, what are the chances of needing the other side done?
1: So I'll say say this, that uh, um, hip dysplasia is often bilateral with differing severities. And so, um, you know, for a for lack of a better way to say this, I, I often say kind of hips are like sisters where they look similar, but they're not exactly the same and they act uh, often very different. And so it depends on the severity of dysplasia. You know, I, I have seen patients that have uh, uh, frank dysplasia on one side and there are impingers on the other side. And so each hip has to be treated separately. Uh, but with that said, hip dysplasia is often bilateral with different severities.
0: Okay, cool. Um, Right, next one. How many hip replacements can you have? I get this one all the time.
1: Well, so um, with any surgery um, that, you know, that I do, and I hope everyone, every other surgeon, you want the first surgery to be the last surgery, okay? And so, with a total hip replacement uh, uh, what what are the outcomes and I think this kind of alludes to that you know how long will my hip replacement last and so uh, with new bearing surfaces, and, and the most commonly used one, and, and one, one of the best uh, is either a, a highly cross linked polyethylene on a ceramic head. Uh, some people still still often use uh, for younger patients a hard on hard or ceramic or ceramic uh, bearing surface. Those two bearing surfaces are, 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 have a great track record and so highly cross linked polyethylene uh, you know the plastic that we often use in total hips um, has gone through multiple generations and um, basically in 2001 2002 ish it was commercially available the new plastics that we use and uh, basically at 17, 18 year data has a, a phenomenal track record with very minimal wear rate. Before that uh, hip replacements uh, were wearing out and we were doing revisions for osteolysis or wearing out of the particles or the liner. Now that is ac- extremely rare. And sometimes you know you could say it's basically a case report if that were to happen. Um, but I am not blind to physics is that uh, at one point in time, you know? These uh, these total hips may need a, a revision because of wear, and so we're just talking about wear, wearing of your new hip joint, uh, not other reasons for revision such as infection or dislocation or fracture or things like that. And so how many revisions can you have? Well, it depends on why why you're having that revision. And so, um, you know, you want to strive for having that first surgery be the best surgery, whether it's a preservation or an arthroplasty, because any subsequent uh, surgery after that, the outcomes uh, are kind of lessened. And, and so one could have many, many surgeries on their hip, but uh, each time you do have that surgery, that the, op- the functional outcome is lessened.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think this is quite a concern for, you know, people that are in their twenties and thirties that are having hip replacements. Um, and it did used to be the case that it might have only lasted 15, 20 years, you know, tops for a replacement. So they're, they're doing the maths and thinking, I've been told that i should only ever really have two and they only last 15 20 years so you can understand perhaps some of the apprehension that people have about having them early but um with technology changing and research developing all the time you know it's reassuring to know that that doesn't have to be the case
1: it doesn't and this is one time this is a great podcast to say if you are young and you have a total hip replacement you need proper surveillance even if you're doing phenomenal and so you know, you need to have x-rays down, you know, subsequently down in recovery. And so I I would recommend, uh, I see my patients at, uh, of course, six weeks, three months, one year, uh, two years, five years, 10 years, and depending on their age, uh, after 10 years may see them yearly for a little while for, for x-rays, uh, but they should be seen at 15 years and they should be seen at 20 years. You shouldn't show up right at 20 years after never being seen after a total hip in a young patient because there are certain things you can pick up on x-ray that can make it an easy uh, uh, change or easy revision or uh, you know, keep that function much easier. And so it's very important to have proper surveillance after a total hip.
0: So after someone's had surgery, whether um, it's a PAO or a hip replacement, how often would you advise that people should be reviewed and monitored? Because I know that a lot of people don't get reviewed at all. You know, they have their initial rehab, they're discharged and never hear anything again until that day that they walk into the doctors and say, I'm in pain. So how often would you suggest that would be a good idea to have a a review.
1: So, so whether it's hip preservation or arthroplasty, one, I, I think it's very important to track outcomes because all these questions that, you know, are being asked and patients ask me are, are determined on, you know, a patient's outcomes. And if you don't see them, you know, you don't honestly know how they're doing. And, and so I, I think it's important, whether a patient's doing well or not, that, uh, as we discussed earlier, you got to continue your hip health exercises. you got to continue being active and focusing on your hip daily. Um, and then so um, with that said, you, you need surveillance. And so I, I, would, I would see patients that, uh, whether it's a PAO or an arthroplasty, um, at one year and two years, and depending on how they're doing at two years, I, I may see them at five or three year, four year, five year, um, and continually through that. And so I would say you need proper surveillance, and so whether it's an arthroplasty or preservation procedure.
0: So if, you've, if you have fallen out of the system or um, you haven't been reviewed in a very long time, is it something that you could go to your GP and say, I, I feel like I could do with a review, is that okay?
1: I, I would love though that, and I welcome uh, that you know for all patients, not even even if they 're not mine and so um, you know I, I help uh, some older surgeons you know here in town that are retiring and you know and I, I stress the importance to their patients that you could still got to come see, uh, see see me even though I was not your surgeon and i 'm honored to see you uh, for proper surveillance and so yes, going to your gP or your primary care physician, um, letting them know that you 've had the surgery, and it 's important to have a, a a follow-up for even if the patient is still doing well and asymptomatic.
0: Brilliant. So message to everybody, don't wait for your surgeons or your GPs to contact you. If you have fallen out of the system, just ask to go back in. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, This next one um, is another really common question um, about chronic pain um, with hip dysplasia. A lot of people do struggle with their pain levels um, on a daily basis um, for the, you know, for a lot of their lives. Um, And this question came in um, and it says, when you're told that there's nothing can be done about the pain relief, is this true? Um, From a lady who is currently on Medicaid after having a total hip, um, with a scoliosis and had a curiossteotomy, which is now bone on bone,
1: so you know i I personally uh, would not have a job if patients did not have pain, uh, um, and so I, I see patients that have symptoms and um, that 's what that 's what I love to help, and that 's what drives me and so number one. Um, you need someone to believe in you that you have symptoms and to be able to investigate that. Number two though, some patients, even after a well done surgery, still have some symptoms and that's where physio and that's where other modalities come and to help. Um, so, you know, some patients still have some discomfort. But it's managing that discomfort, getting it to a comfortable level that we can manage. And so, if you are still having symptoms f- from your hip and your, or your back or your you know your your chiari, whether it's your hip replacement and you still have pain, you should still uh, you need to follow up to to help because um, you know just reassurance or, or certain things uh, can be done. Um, And so, never give up. uh, And with that said, you know, never give up on uh, recovery and and your pain. And so, sometimes we do have to uh, accept some levels of pain, but don't give up on getting it to a comfortable level.
0: Absolutely, don't sit back and you know, ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Brilliant. And there is one last question, um, if you've got time for it.
1: Yes, let's keep going. This is great.
0: I'm absolutely loving this. Thank you so much. Um, Okay, so this is a slightly, slightly more complicated one, Um, and it's to do with the whole pandemic thing, really. So this lady said that she um, has uh, an eight-month-old daughter that was diagnosed at seven weeks. Um, She had the Pavlik fitted for twelve weeks, um, and she wasn't progressing um, just before lockdown happened. So they said that she might need surgery or splinting, um, but the consultant disappeared um, through the pandemic um, and stopped working and now they don't have a consultant anymore and all they've been able to access is physios Um, and they've said basically that it will be okay. Um, So there's no further intervention happening and she's given some angles and bits and pieces. I can send them over to you afterwards um, if you'd prefer but um, she's a bit concerned that she was told one thing and then because of the pandemic things of situations have changed and now obviously being told something different so um i guess the question is would you persevere and keep checking or would you go with what you're being told by the physios what would you say would be your professional opinion on what she should do
1: yes and so i i don't know if you guys sorry my i I have a little two-year-old son and so fight for your child and so yes you you know uh, he, she needs to be seen. I, I believe I heard it was a, as a girl. And so yes. she, he, he or she, she needs to be seen. And so um, it, whether that consultant uh, is in the pandemic is not able to accept new patients or something like that, there's got to be another one. So f- fight for your child. And yes, uh, physios are phenomenal and they're great, but the, this, the, you know, this girl, there are maybe, so what we can do yes. and what we
0: know, you know, we all have our different departments because we're specialists in our own area. Um, And yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable making that decision. um, As I know, many, many other physios wouldn't be. Um, But if you're in a situation like that, where there's no other person to turn to, you know, bless the poor physios. But yeah, please fight for the consultant appointment, whoever that may be.
1: Yes, fight for it, and you know everyone. uh, You know everyone wants the physios want everyone to be healthy and happy and okay, right? Um, But at the same time, uh, sometimes you need more objective data. So whether it's a repeat ultrasound or uh, or or an X-ray if she gets too old or something like that, she just needs another checkup without a doubt.
0: Absolutely. I mean, so that's the main questions that I wanted to go through with you today. And I just can't thank you enough for your time. And, you know, just making the time to speak and answer the questions from, you know, the real people out there that are living with this every day. Um, And just to know that you wanted to take that time out for them to answer their questions. Like I said, very, very grateful to you.
1: Well, it's my pleasure and I have the best job in the world and that's, I, I just want to help patients. And so um, anytime and uh, feel free uh, to, to reach out to me, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I do get busy, but if, if, if anyone wants to reach out to me, uh, feel free to email me anytime. I'm always happy to answer. Uh, it, may, it may take some time sometimes, but uh, I'm always happy and always there for patients.
0: Thank you so much. So you mentioned um, your web um, address for the journey guide. Um, Do you mind just um, saying out loud for us the the web address for
1: us? So the best way to do it is actually uh, just Google Joel Wells, MD, and then uh, my UT Southwestern uh, uh, web page will come up. Um, It's uh, utswmed.org slash Doctors slash Joel Dash Wells, and if you go to my webpage at the very at the very bottom, uh, there are links, and one of them is a journey guide to hip and knee surgery. There are there are other documents on there um, that that um, feel free to uh, download and uh, and use uh, um, in some other uh, um, forms as well.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. And um, for those of you who haven't found um, Joel yet on social media, um, go and find him on Instagram um, at Joel Wells MD. I think that's your Instagram handle. He's um, very, very active on the community um, and has some really cool stuff that comes up um, on his page. So uh, yeah, like I said, can't thank you enough for coming on. And it would be lovely to perhaps do another one of these in a, in a little while to follow up with some more questions from everybody.
1: that'd be great Uh, you know um, we uh, we do some labs and stuff and some anatomy things and so it'd be cool maybe to do a little talk or something I'm always happy to happy to teach uh, also
0: amazing thank you so much we'll catch up soon thank you so much cheers thank you so much for listening we'll be back again next week with another inspiring and incredible guest see you soon